Welcome to A.T. Stewart and Sons Ministries. I'm your host, A.T. Stewart. I'm glad you've chosen to join us today as we look into the Word of God. So take your Bibles and let's hang out in God's Word for a few moments and see what God would say to us today. Indeed, God, you are great. There are no words in our language that can adequately describe your greatness. The best we can do is infinite, that which has no bounds, that which is without limits. And even our minds cannot comprehend how your greatness, your love, your righteousness, your holiness, your justice, all that you are is without bounds, without limits. You alone are the infinite one. We as finite creatures cannot comprehend the infinite. So Father, we borrow from your word simply proclaim back to you what you have said about yourself using our language. That indeed you alone are worthy of all praise and honor and glory and dominion. You alone are worthy of our utmost allegiance and surrender and obedience. May we come before your word, Father, with an attitude of surrender, an attitude of a teachable spirit, that you might instruct us and teach us that, Father, we might listen to your word as our Heavenly Father, and that your spirit will enable us to live this word, Father, bring up our lives to the level of your word. Not for our glory, but for your glory. That people might see you in us. And seeing you in us, come to know you as their personal Lord and Savior. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Today we're going to see that Peter makes a switch in his direction. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. You will remember in verses 1 through 12, the passages we have already looked at, Peter has been offering comfort to Christians who were suffering. And he was giving them comfort by giving them basic Christian doctrine. He first of all spoke to those who were confused about what they were going through. Thinking if they're children of God and Christians, why were they suffering? And he said to them, you're suffering partly because you are aliens here on earth. That you should expect to suffer. You're not at home here. 
Your true citizenship is in heaven. And then he dealt with those who felt God forsaken. Surely God has forgotten us. Surely he has forsaken us because of what hardships we're going through. And to those he said, far from being God forsaken, you are chosen of God. When you understand all that God went through to save you, you would never consider that he has abandoned you and forsaken you. Then thirdly, he dealt with those who were depressed, who had a sense of hopelessness and despair. And he says, you need to look at the inheritance that God has for you. He's reserved for you in heaven. You need to place your confident expectation on that future inheritance that God has not only reserved for you, but he is reserving you for that inheritance. And then last week we saw that he gave us the first indication of the why. Why we suffer. And he said that compared to eternity, our suffering is, is really short. He said it's diverse in nature. And the purpose of our suffering is to show the quality, the genuineness of our faith. And so what we need to do in our times of suffering is realize God is using it to purify our faith. And not only to purify it, but to preserve it. And to enable us to live righteously before Him. Now in verse 13, Peter makes a shift. He moves from giving them doctrinal truth to giving them very practical exhortations. In fact, we have the first command in the entire book given in these verses. Peter is telling us that we can find comfort in our adversity through living righteous lives. When you're going through hardships and sufferings and trials, you can find comfort in knowing that you're living a holy life. Look in verse 13 of chapter 1. Of first Peter. He begins the verse with therefore. Now you've heard it said, whenever you're reading scripture and you see a therefore, you need to look at what the therefore is therefore. What's he referring to? I believe he's primarily referring to what he has said in verses six through nine, and that is the purpose of our suffering. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that, with the purpose, that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him, and though you do not see Him now, But believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. He says, therefore, because God is using your trials to show the genuineness of your faith by the way you act in those trials, by the way you live in those trials, the purpose of those trials being to show the quality of your faith, therefore... Let me tell you how to live in those trials so that they will show the genuineness and high quality of your faith. 
So now that he said the purpose is to show the quality of your faith, now I'm going to show you what kind of actions. If you live this way during your trials and adversity, it will indeed show the high quality, the genuineness of your faith. So he gives basically three commands. Live like this, he's saying, and it shows and proves the genuineness of your faith. Here are the three commands. And these are in the imperative mood in the Greek. They are commands. First, we are to fix our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Secondly, we are to be holy in our conduct. And thirdly, we are to live in reverent fear in all of God. Now, let's stand as I read our passage for you. And in respect for God's Word, beginning in verse 12, excuse me, beginning in verse 13. All right? Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. First command. Second. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the form of lust with which yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, second command, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, here the third command comes in. Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead, gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. You may be seated. May God bless the reading and the hearing and most of all the obeying of his word. The first command, the first imperative is we are to fix our hope completely on the grace to be revealed to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 13. This is the first command in all of this letter. Now the form of this imperative indicates a clear, cut, decisive action. Now, its force is further intensified by the adverb completely. Fix your hope completely or fully or Firmly. And the actual Greek means to the end. Fix your hope to the end. Completely. For the purpose of. For the goal of. Fix your hope completely. Firmly. On the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now what does it mean by that? What does it mean to fix your hope on the grace well, he means on what God's going to do for us when Christ returns. We've seen that in, in previous verses. He says, 
Fix your hope. Remember, hope is a confident expectation of something that's going to happen on the grace that God is going to work in your life when Jesus comes back with great glory and power. He means to fix our gaze on the coming glory of Jesus appearing and our glorification with Him. Remember, when Jesus comes back, we're going to be glorified with Him. You remember, we're going to be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. Peter talks about this further in chapter 4, verse 13, when he says, But to the degree you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exaltation. With exaltation, with even more rejoicing. Now look what he says. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. What does he mean? The more you suffer, the more rejoicing you can have. Why? Because the more you suffer, the more purified your faith becomes. You remember the gold in the fiery furnace being purified. The more suffering you go through, the more your faith grows into Christ's likeness. So the more you share the sufferings of Christ, the more you can get excited about Him coming back because the greater your glory is going to be when He comes back. Because you shared in His sufferings, to that degree you shall also share in His glory. That's why you can rejoice when you're going through those hardships and those difficulties, because they are strengthening your faith. Now remember, I am convinced that a trouble-free life would cause your faith to shrivel up, dry up, and become practically nothing. Remember, it's like that muscle. You've got to exercise it to keep it strong. Our faith has to be exercised in order to make it strong and keep it strong and even make it stronger. And when Jesus comes back, we will share in His glory. Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter 3. He says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform the body of our humble state. Now, your body is humble right now. That means we get wrinkles. That means we start sagging. You know, gravity has its effect, doesn't it? That means we get sick. That means that hair starts growing in places that never has grown before as you get older. Some of you... Your hair doesn't grow in places it used to grow as you get older. I just started earlier than some. But your body is a humble body now. But look what it says. He will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with what? The body of His glory. Conformity to the body of His glory. When Jesus returns in great power and glory, we who belong to Him 
our bodies will be transformed into the same glory. God said we'll shine as the noonday sun, as children of the kingdom of God. Great glory. By the exertion of the power he has even to subject all things to himself. You see, the fullness of our salvation will be complete when we will be like him. Now he says, fix your hope. On this grace, this enabling work of God, this power of God working in your life to make you glorified, fix your hope on this that will occur when Christ returns. That's His revelation. When He returns, when the heavens split open and the great sound of the trumpet and Christ appears. Fix your hope on that. Now, if you're going to fix your hope on that, there are two things you need to do. First, we must prepare our minds for action. You see in verse 13, preparing your minds for action, keep sober and in spirit, those are participles. The main verb is fix your hope. So what I think Peter's saying is if you're going to fix your hope on the grace that's going to come at Jesus' return, there's a couple things you need to do. First, you've got to prepare your mind for action. Literally, in the Greek, it's gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. There's a word picture that Peter's given us. You know, back in biblical days, men used to wear robes. And because you and I don't wear robes, men, we are not clearly understanding what Peter's talking about here. We don't get the fullness of it. Now, I wear a robe when I do weddings sometimes, a pulpit robe. And I will be down and I'll be walking up these steps. And you know what I invariably do? I step on the front of the robe. Now, I noticed yesterday at the, uh, last night at the wedding that the girls were coming up and they had long dresses on, but every one of them would hitch it up before they'd step up. They, they knew to do that. We men don't think about doing that. So if I don't catch myself, I'll step on my robe and it kind of pulls me down. So I have to remember to hitch it when I take a step. Well, in biblical days, when a man wanted to get out to action, and he really wanted to get out to hard working, he would take his robe and he would grab the bottom of it and he would pull it between his legs and he would stick it down in his belt. Well, then he kind of had on like shorts, you know. You can see the picture? Then he was girding his loins. That meant he was ready for action. Either he was going to run or he was getting ready to work hard. But he got his robe out of the way. Now this is what Peter's saying. Gird the loin of your minds. Now in our day and time we'd say roll up your sleeves. That's a sign you're getting ready to do some work, right? Roll up the sleeves of your mind. Get ready for strenuous mental activity is what he's saying. Lay aside laziness of mind. Peter's saying that it is hard mental work to fix your minds on the grace to be brought to you at Jesus' return. Why is that? Why is it hard mental work to keep thinking about fixing our minds on what God's got in store for us when He returns? Because we live in the here and now. We're creatures of here and now. And so what we tend to think is this is everything right now. 
My problem that I'm going through right now consumes me, and basically there's nothing else. It's never going to end. I'm here. I'm stuck. This is it. And because we're creatures of here and now, our thinking is in the here and now. And we need to step back and say, wait a minute, there's a bigger picture here. There's a much bigger picture than this, just what I'm going through right now, though it is draining me and it is consuming me and it's taking everything I got to get through it. I need to step back and say, wait a minute, there's a bigger picture. God is working to prove the genuineness of my faith and He's got some wonderful, inexpressible things waiting for me when Jesus returns. I need to get the right perspective on what I'm going through. And that takes some hard mental activity. You're going to have to force your mind to get out of your immediate adversity and project into the future what God has waiting for you. And the hope that we will be like Jesus someday motivates us to holy living. This is what John said over in 1 John chapter 3. Now look at this. He says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. All right, we're children of God right now, but you know, what you see right now is not what you're going to always see, right? You're going to be different. We know that when He appears, the second coming, we will be like him transformed into from this humble body to the conformity to the body of his glory. Okay? We will be like him because we will see him just as he is. When we see Christ in his revelation, when he returns, folks, it's going to transform. To see Christ is to be transformed. And everyone who has fixed, who has this hope fixed on Him, the hope that Christ is going to return and He's going to transform us when He returns, we're going to be like Him. Everyone who has this hope fixed on Him does what? Purifies Himself. Just as He is pure. When you think about what God has waiting for you in the future, about the perfect body and perfect holiness He has waiting for you, that should make you want to live a holy life now, not wait until then. I want to live it now. So first, we must gird up the loins of our minds. Roll up the sleeves of your mind. Get ready for strenuous mental activity. It takes it. And then next, we need to be sober in spirit, Peter says. He's dealing with clarity of mind and clarity of heart. Sober spirit means being under control, self-disciplined. He's drawing the contrast between drunkenness and sobriety. When a person is drunk, he's undisciplined, he's out of control, his thinking is clouded and confused. Therefore, a sober person should be clear in their thinking and self-controlled. Basically, Peter's saying is we must be in a constant state of readiness, alert in mind, clear in our thinking, in order to fix our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus. It's that sense of readiness. 
Jesus, I think, had this in mind when he talked about in Luke 12. He says, be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom his master will find on the alert when he comes. Jesus talked about the importance of readiness, being alert and ready for his second coming. Being alert and ready to put our hope on the grace that he has in store for us. So the first thing Peter is saying is that we need to keep ourselves mentally alert, ready for the strenuous action, and that we must keep our spirit sober and in a state of readiness so we can fix our hope completely, fully, firmly on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That means when adversity strikes, we can rise above it and remember a much better day is coming. My hope is not fixed on the here and now, but on God who has in store for me, when Jesus comes back, great glory beyond imagination. So when you're going through the hard times, you're going through the difficulty, you need to exercise that strenuous mental activity and say, wait a minute. Hey, this is not all there is. I got a much better day awaiting. People accuse Christians of being so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. Well, I think the problem we have this day and time is Christians are too earthly minded. They're no heavenly good. We need to think about what God's got in store for us in the future, in heaven. That is a motivation for godly living, for holy living. So that's the first thing we need to do. Second. We are to be holy in all our behavior. Like the holy God who calls us, we are to be holy in our conduct, in our actions. As obedient children, verse 14, do not be conformed to the former lusts with which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who calls you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now first I want you to look at the motivation for living a holy life. It's found in verse 16. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Our motivation for living a holy life is our obedience to God. Peter's quoting from Leviticus chapter 11, where God commands Israel to be holy. Peter's saying God also commands us as Christians to be holy. Living a holy life is not an option for us. It is commanded by our Heavenly Father. And that's our motivation. Our Holy Heavenly Father has commanded us, and as loving children, we want to obey our Heavenly Father. You see, our holy life is to be an expression of our love for God. Your child comes up to you and says, Mommy, I love you. And you say, Honey, I love you too. Now it's time to go straighten up your room. Well, rather than going in and straighten up the room, kid goes outside and plays. You realize they haven't obeyed, so you go to the door and say, Susie, you need to come in. It's time to straighten your room. Susie comes up to the door and she says, Mommy, I love you. And you say, Mom, and you say, I love you too, Susie. Now it's time to straighten up your room. 
She says, okay, and she walks by, and next thing you know, she's in another part of the house doing something else, not obeying you. So you come in, and you're a little exasperated at this point, and you say, Susie, Mommy, I love you. Now, something's wrong with that kid's definition of love. She needs to understand love, true love, involves respect and a desire to please. And that means obedience. A child who truly loves their parent will be obedient to that parent. That love will show itself in a lifestyle of submission and obedience. Words are cheap. It's actions that cost. And so when we say we love God, we show it by our desire to live obediently to His commands, and His command is to live a holy life. It bothers me when I see people living in immorality, living with people, living with each other, being unmarried, involved in premarital sexual relationships, and yet they come to church and say, Oh, I love God. But their life is anything but a holy life. They don't love God. They need to understand what true love is. Jesus said, if you love me, what? You will obey my commandments. And so, a holy life is one committed to the Lord Jesus, and our motivation is our desire to obey Him because we love Him. Now Peter is going to tell us what a holy life is. There are four things involved in a holy life. It's easy to say, live a holy life. But what does that mean, preacher? All right, here it goes. First, it means to live in obedience to God's Word. He says, as obedient children, we only know what holiness is from God's Word. We only know what holiness is from the standard of God's Word. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. You cannot depend on yourself to determine what holy actions are. We must go to the Word of God and let the Word of God tell us what holy living is. We must live according to what God says in His Word. For example, somebody hurts me or hurts someone I love, And you know, my immediate response is to want to retaliate. I want to get back at them. But what does God's Word say? God's Word says, Do not, over in Romans chapter 12, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So as one who wants to live a holy life, I have the standard of holiness set before me in the Word of God, and that is I am not to take revenge. I am to leave that to God. Now that's just one example of the teachings throughout Scripture. Don't return evil for evil, but return good for evil. The standard of God's Word is our standard of a holy life. So at first it means living in obedience to the Word. Secondly... To live a holy life means I am not conformed to the ways of the world. As Peter says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in your ignorance. Now he's talking about before they became Christians. 
Their lives were dominated by worldly values, worldly desires, sinful lust. Peter says it's time to put all those away now. You're a new creation in Christ. You march to the beat of a different drummer now. Instead of living according to the world's ways, you are to live according to God's ways. Paul says the same thing in Romans 12. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Our minds need to be transformed by the Word of God. God's thoughts become our thoughts. And we don't live according to the world's way, but God's way. Thirdly, to live a holy life is to set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. It's to live under the Lordship of Jesus. He's our King. He is the sovereign ruler in our life. Obedience to the Lord of the Word is obedience to the Word of the Lord. Again, it all goes back to the obedience thing, doesn't it? All of this is just different ways of looking at the same truth. Sanctify Christ as Lord of your hearts. Live in obedience to the Word. Don't be conformed to the ways of the world. All of that is just one way of looking, several ways of looking at the one truth of a holy life. And then fourthly, To live a holy life is to live a life where love is supreme. This is key. Holiness cannot be reduced to a list of do's and don'ts. And that's what we generally want to do. We want to say, if I don't smoke, I don't chew, and I don't date girls who do, I'm holy. Right? If I come to church and read my Bible and say my prayers, I'm holy. We want to make a list and check off that list. Okay, I've done this, I've done that. You know, and we haven't dealt with the inward heart. The Pharisees did all the right things, folks, but they were not wholly worthy. So we've got to get past putting together a list and thinking that's what holiness is. Holiness is to live a life where love is supreme. Holiness must flow from our heart. And the key is love. A holy life is a life that loves the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourself. We imitate the love and compassion of our Heavenly Father, that love that He's poured out on us. Paul said you can reduce the Word of God, the law of God, to this simple Axiom, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong. If we just do the loving thing, we will be living a holy life. Look what Paul says in Romans 13. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. He's lived a holy life. For this you shall not murder, commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. If there is any other commandment, it's summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So that's what your rule is. 
Am I acting out of true, genuine, biblical love? Not love the way you define it, not like the little kid defined it, but the way the Scripture defines it. Am I living a life of love? That's the key to holy living. So what's Peter saying? He's saying that the actions that will prove the genuineness of your faith when you're going through adversity are first, you with strenuous mental activity set your hope completely on the grace to be revealed to you at Jesus' coming back, His return. And secondly, you live a holy life because as an act of love to a Father who has commanded you to be holy, you desire to obey Him. And you live a life where love is supreme. Now the third command, verse 17. We are to live in reverent fear and awe of God. You address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work. Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. We are to live in a reverent fear and holy awe of God. This fear is not a horror like we would have of a monster or a violent criminal, but it is a respect, it is a awe, it is a reverence that one has for a superior, someone we greatly admire and love. So our attitude should be, I know God sees everything I do and He knows every thought I have, and I have such a reverent fear and respect of Him, I do not want to disobey Him or displease Him in anything. To live in fear of God means you do not want to disobey or displease Him in anything. That's what it means. Now Peter says our first motivation for living in fear of God is to realize He's our judge. We will stand before Him to be judged one day. Again, we saw last week, that is the judgment seat of Christ over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Not the great white throne of judgment, but rather that which will be judged as Christians for our faithfulness to our Lord. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. This is accountability. There is a day of reckoning coming that even we as Christians must stand before our God and give an account for how we've lived this life. Have we fixed our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Christ? Have we sought to be holy as He is holy, live with love supremely in our life? We will have to give an account someday. Accountability is a strong motivation, folks. I've been involved in some men's groups where I've entered into accountability with guys and we had a list of questions we would ask ourselves each week. And you know, that was a, a, a motivation, an impetus to live a good life. Because I knew I was going to stand before those guys and we were going to go down the list. Have you handled your finances in any way this, this week that has been unrighteous or against scriptural principle? Have you failed to pay any debts that you owe this week? And you start thinking about these things. Have you looked at anything that is displeasing to the Lord? And 
And you start thinking about those things, and during the week you might be tempted, and you realize, now, wait a minute, I'm going to have to give an account. So, nope, it's a motivation. It's a deterrent. But that's basically what he's saying here. Wait a minute. Now, you're going to be accountable to God, so you need to live your life today realizing someday you're going to have to give an account for it. And that ought to be a motivation for holy living. A motivation for living rightly before our God. So the first motivation is, hey, you're going to have to give an account one day. But a more powerful motivation is the ultimate price God paid to save us. When you realize what ultimate price God paid for your salvation, this makes you want to live in holy awe and reverence for Him. Verse 18. Knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood. Not all the silver and gold in the world could have redeemed you. It's not enough. Not all the trillions and zillions of dollars and wealth in this world would have been enough to redeem you from your slavery to sin and Satan. But what He paid to redeem you and me was the precious blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. But with precious blood as a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. That's our motivation for holy living. The price, the ultimate price God paid for you. And if you'd been the only person living on planet earth, he would have still died for you. Just you. He would have given his all. Precious blood. Let's pray.